Well, I appreciate that introduction. You know, usually when I go to uh, speak at a church, I send them my bio, and they, tell, they say whatever I tell them to say. So I can be very controlling about that. And uh, then I'm like, wait a minute. I have zero control about what he's about to say. Fortunately, uh, there's a lot of things he could have said that he didn't say that I'm really grateful for. But anyway, it is indeed a privilege to be with you today. And we are kicking off, as Courtney mentioned, a four-part series uh, specifically on the Incarnation. And you say, what's that? Well, the Incarnation uh, simply means the act of being made flesh. It's not very complicated. Uh, the reality is that Jesus, as God, became flesh. And that's what we're going to be talking about in some measure. You have four weeks kind of attacking that concept from a variety of different angles. And one of the key passages that we have that, that addresses this very thing, it's really kind of the, 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 the critical passage, is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is simply this God became flesh. And I say simply not because it's simple. <laughs> we, we have no clue how that happened, how that works. How is it that God can kind of cram himself, if you will, into the body of a human being. We don't know. But over the next four weeks, we are going to consider different elements, different angles, if you will, of this amazing, amazing reality. My topic for today is, to kick this off, is the incarnation, the extraordinary, supernatural plan of God. And my goal for today is primarily to walk you through the Old Testament, pulling the thread, if you will, the scarlet thread of redemption up to the event of the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus Christ in this extraordinary supernatural insertion of the God of the universe into human history. You understand that the Bible, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, has one theme. One theme. You see, God created, and he said it was good. And he created human beings as the, the apex, the pinnacle of his creation. And it didn't take very long. By the third chapter, God's plan was disrupted. We call it the fall. <laughs> and God spends the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the book, laying out and implementing his plan to fix what got messed up in Genesis chapter 3. Today, in our modern times, it's very easy for us to kind of see this hard disconnect, this hard line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even attempts to kind of disconnect those two. 
But I'm here to tell you today that those two are not disconnected. The 400 years of silence between the two is a blip on the screen. It is a moment in time. It's nothing. And my hope today is to help kind of erase and reconnect for us the significant link and to realize that it's just one theme. Yes, the Old Testament is challenging for us. There are things that happen that are are strange to our ears that culturally we have a hard time getting our arms around and we have to dig a little deeper than all of that. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the gym, which is my primary place to be around people who don't believe in Jesus. I'm a pastor. I spend most of my time with Christians. I'm like, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to get away from these people and get around some, some people who really don't understand this Jesus thing and breathe some new life, if you will, into my own journey. And so I was introduced myself to a young man in his 20s by the name of Colby. And uh, we got talking, and, and as is typical, they asked me what I do. And sometimes when I say I'm a pastor, that slams the door shut, or it opens it, depending, right, on their journey and experience. Well, in this case, it kind of opened it up. And, and I learned that he had just started going to an, a local church with his girlfriend. I said, that's great. I said, do you have a Bible? And he said, yes. I said, well, have you started reading your Bible? And he says, well, yes. And I said, well, where did you start? And he said, at the beginning. And I said, can I make a recommendation to you? Uh, Because I'm thinking he's going to get through Genesis. He's going to get through Exodus. And it's going to be these epic tales and intrigue and all of that. And then he's going to start Leviticus. (laughs) And the whole thing is going to come to a screeching halt. And I said, you know, Obviously, I just said the Old Testament is important, but let's start with Jesus, and then let's work our way back. And today what we're going to do is we're going to work our way back and see how Jesus and this whole notion of the incarnation, the messaging started a long time ago. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene with zero context. Many New Testament believers don't realize that. And so we're going to start pulling the red scarlet thread of redemption through the Bible up to the incarnation. And then in the three weeks to follow, you're going to see a variety of different approaches and understandings and perspectives on this very notion. As I said, God created And it was good, he said. This is awesome. And then something went terribly wrong. We call it the fall. We call it sin. We call it human beings made a choice. Starting in Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord God looked at the woman and he said, What have you done? What have you done? Genesis 3.13 And immediately following that moment, God revealed the beginning of his plan. Do you know the first mention, the first hint that God had a plan and he was going to activate it and he was going to rescue the world, his fallen creation, by his own plan? Do you know where that's first mentioned? Two verses later in Genesis 3, 15. Oops, sorry, went backwards. There we go. He said, I will bring... Now, he turns his attention from the woman, from the man and the woman, to Satan. And he says this. He says, I will put 
enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You know, you're going to go to some Christmas parties this year, before Christmas, and I'm going to give you a little fuel to help you look like an absolute genius to some of your friends. You're going to say, hey, do you know the first mention in the Bible, the first peek behind the curtain of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ? They're going to say, well, no, I don't. And you're going to say it's found in Genesis 3, 15, and it is called the Proto-Evangelium. And they're going to go, whoa, you are a genius. Proto means earliest form of. And evangelium means good news. The earliest form of the message of God's good news is found in this verse where he projects thousands of years into the future and he says there's going to be a plan in the incarnation where Jesus is going to come and he is going to die on the cross. You're going to bruise him, but he's going to crush you through the resurrection. And this is the first mention, Genesis chapter 3, two verses after the fall God gives us that first peak as we pull the scarlet thread from the very beginning of all time. The second peak, the the second hint, the second allusion to the incarnation and what was to come is found in just a few short verses later in verse 21 of that same chapter. It says, Where the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first mention of death, actual physical death in the Bible. How do you think God got skins to, to clothe them? God gave us a hint of what we refer to as the substitutionary atonement. Substitution, atonement meaning to make right. The first time that God hinted to the need to make it right substitutionarily by killing animals and creating a substitute for their fall. You understand that the partner to sin is shame. Sin brings shame. That's why We don't want to confess. We don't like to confess. We don't want to be transparent. We don't want to come humbly before God. We don't want to confess our sins to one another. We don't want to do any of this. Why? Because sin brings shame. And God covered the shame through a substitute already in Genesis chapter 3. All right, let's pull the thread a little bit more. The call of Abraham. Fast forward a few short chapters into Genesis chapter 12. God had a plan where he was going to bring redemption to the whole world. And he called a man. And this is what he said about that man and about his life, about his journey. He said, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's home to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great. And so your name shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth. Here it is. Will be blessed. 
What is this an allusion to as we pull the thread? This is a reference to the incarnation itself, that one day God was gonna bless the whole world through you. How, how could this be? How can I, as a man, what is going to happen down into the future that you're gonna bring a blessing to the whole world? Through Jesus. Let's pull this thread just a little bit more. Through the life of Abraham, we see many, many, many references to the gospel. The first hint of true, of the true sacrificial substitutionary work of Jesus is found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. So then God said, take your son, and listen for some of the words in this passage. God, God said, take your son, your only son, hold on to that, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Sacrifice your only son, whom you love. Sacrifice him. Does any of this ring a bell to anybody? Hebrews 11. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You know, Abraham, when he got to Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount today, where Abraham was to sacrifice him, it's important for you and for me to understand, or ask the question, why wasn't Abraham just a little bit more freaked out by God's request? Why is that? Well, number one, you understand that to us, the idea of child sacrifice is unthinkable. It, it, it is so foreign to us. And yet if you traced child, the, the, the practice of child sacrifice, you would see that it is in a variety of cultures uh, throughout all of history. Abraham was not unfamiliar with child sacrifice, not because he practiced it, but because it was everywhere around him. And so for God to make this request didn't freak him out. I mean, he, he saw it all around him. But, but there's a second reason. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought in his mind, he reasoned, you know what? God promised that this boy right here is the promised child through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. God didn't tell him what he was going to do. But he reasoned to himself, you know what? God has this. He's got this covered. He, he must be able to raise the dead. Had anybody been raised from the dead up to this point? No, not to our knowledge. But God is able. God is able. And in the nick of time, God stopped Abraham. And this passage in Genesis chapter 22, as we pull the scarlet thread of redemption, is really a reference to the most well-known Bible verse in the whole book. And it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whom he loved, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So you see, the, the son that God loves, his only son, whom he sacrificed, 
as a fulfillment to the typology of Isaac in the Old Testament. Powerful. Just a couple weeks ago, my pastor, uh, senior pastor, who is walking his way through Genesis, uh, which is a task, right? I I think we're like in... I don't know, message 135 out of 300 or something like that, right, as we walk through Genesis. He tied the whole focus of Genesis 22, he said, is John 3, 16. I said, yes, that's absolutely true. Because as you pull the scarlet thread of redemption, the link between the incarnation of Jesus is throughout the whole Old Testament. Throughout the whole Old Testament. Let's pull that thread a little further. The first expression of being saved by a blood sacrifice. The foreshadowing of what was to come as a result of the incarnation. Where do we find it? Exodus chapter 12. You know the the Israelites were in bondage. They were in captivity in, in Egypt. In slavery for 400 years. Moses comes by God's command to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. He says no. He hardens his heart. And disaster, through this whole book, the Egyptians are getting creamed through one plague after another. And then we find in Exodus chapter 12, the final plague comes to pass. They were commanded to kill a perfect lamb and that this is what they are to do. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, here it is, here's the most important part, I will pass over you. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to participate in a Passover Seder? Raise your hand. Okay, to the rest of you, I would say this. You owe it to yourself at some point in your journey to participate in a Passover Seder that is led by a Messianic Jewish person. You owe it to yourself to do that. And suddenly, this whole event and your understanding of Christ buried deeply, sometimes obscurely, in the Old Testament will burst into life for you. Do you know what they do? Do you know what Jewish people do without even understanding what they're doing? It's unbelievable. You find yourself as you're going through this going, this isn't a Christian version of the Passover. This is the only version of the Passover. And you go, don't they see it? Don't they see it? You say, well, like what? What do you mean? Well, one of the things that they do is they'll, they'll take three pieces of matzah. Three. They have no clue that that represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't see it. And then they're going to take one of those pieces of matzah Which one? The middle one. Oh yeah, the middle one. And they pull that out. And what do they do with it? They break it. And they take half of it and they hide, they bury it. And then it comes back. 
It comes back. And you're going, oh, don't you see? And they don't. And you know what the matzah, if you look at a piece of matzah, you know what you see? You see something with, that is pierced and with stripes. Does that sound familiar to anybody? For our sins, he was pierced. And by his stripes, <laughs> we are healed. And so much more. The Passover that the Jewish people have celebrated for thousands of years has Jesus written all over it. Oh, the Old Testament is so relevant. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And at this moment in Exodus chapter 12, they initiated a practice that would be celebrated by the Jews for generations. It was the foundation for the creation of the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, the center of Jewish worship for generations. The scarlet thread leading up to the incarnation. And you understand, if you, you, you know the passages of Scripture in the Old Testament where they talk about uh, all of the things that have to do with the tabernacle. They talk about the, the, the width and the length and the height of uh, the dimensions of this piece and that piece of this room and that room and all the garments that they're wearing and how to create all the implements and the tools that they need tirelessly. I know, be honest, you speed read through those passages when, through your, when you're reading through your one-year Bible. I know you do. Because I do it too. And we find ourselves going, why do, they, why do we care about that? Let me tell you why you care. God in all of this is expressing the extent, the weight that they endured for the expression of substitutionary sacrifice. All that they went through, the, the time, the effort, the energy, the resources, because this sacrifice, this substitute was so important, everything had to be perfect, and it carried so much weight. This was everything to them. And in the New Testament, we say, all you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer, and that's it. It's so easy. You know, coming to faith in Jesus, it is easy. Oh, but my friends, do not ever underestimate the weight. All of the weight that you read in the Old Testament about what this whole process was about, all of that weight was transferred not onto you and our practices today, but onto Jesus. The weight still exists. It's just not a weight that we carry. It's a weight that Jesus carried. So when you're talking to people about Jesus, when you're helping people understand what it is, oh, please, please emphasize the weight, but emphasize the reality that the weight isn't on us as people. It's on him. It's on him. And in the midst of all that, what the Bible tells us is that everything that they did was insufficient. What? They went through all of that? And it was insufficient? 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What? They went through all of that. And it was inadequate. And all of that weight is transferred over onto Jesus. As we pull this red thread, this scarlet thread, we see Jesus everywhere. We see Jesus in Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah was talking to King Ahaz in the southern kingdom. And he encouraged Ahaz, Ahaz, King Ahaz, look, ask God for a sign. And he refused, he refused. And Isaiah said, oh, he's gonna give you a sign, all right. He's gonna do it. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Fast forward into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The incarnation. I don't understand it. I don't understand how God can be made man. The entire burden of this reconciliation process God bears himself the angel same one incidentally in Luke shows himself to Mary and Mary says to the angel how can this be since I am a virgin and the angel answered and said to her the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. You know, I have one of the most sophisticated Bible programs on my computer, you know, because this is what pastors need to have as they study God's word, as they need to dig deeper into the languages and this and that. And and as you study God's word, sometimes you, you dig in and you go, oh, you see insights that you never saw before just by reading the English Bible. And so I decided, you know, when it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, I'm thinking, yes, that is so deep. What does that mean? And so I I dug deeply into the text and I discovered that the Holy Spirit will come upon you means that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's all I got. (laughs) I I, I was like, I I don't get how that works. I, you know, I was hoping for something a little bit more mysterious, a little, a little deeper, And I thought, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Surely there's something deeper in that word, overshadow. And it's just, no, uh uh-uh. It's just overshadow. But in that moment, God did something amazing. He brought this scarlet thread woven throughout the whole Old Testament. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that we do not have time for today that continue to unfold this reality up through the time of Jesus 
Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews, and if you want to understand this link in a deeper way between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the seamless connection, when you deal, when you set aside all the cultural challenges and issues, the thread that is woven through, read the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. A study of the word, word, is a powerful and fascinating study. God created at found the foundation in Genesis by his word. And Jesus is the living word. You know, in the foundation at the beginning of the church, one of the greatest challenges was understanding this dynamic that Jesus is God and man at the same time. And virtually every early heresy, every challenge at the, first, the early church for the first couple of hundred years, and it has residue, if you will, into today, every single one is related to the minimizing of either Jesus' deity or his humanity because they had just as difficult of a time getting their arms around it as we do. There's another fancy theological word for this idea. It's called the hypostatic union. Uh, and that's another word you can throw out at your Christmas parties this year. You know, Jesus coming is really the hypostatic union. And they would go, whoa, you're amazing. <laughs> but I want to take a moment and I want to articulate the importance of the fact that Jesus is both God and man. That God crammed himself into a human body. You know, many people deny the reality that Jesus ever claimed to be God. And it's just not true. Even those who were around him understood what he was saying. There's a passage in John where Jesus is engaged with the religious leaders of the day. And this was the interaction. It says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he says to the Jewish leaders. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Come on, what are you talking about? And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You know, Jesus, like, your verb tense is a little off there. You know, like, uh, you know, we would traditionally say, before Abraham was, I was. I, I was before his was, right? I, he was, and I was before that. But you understand that God himself created time. He is not bound by it. He exists apart from it. That God exists in past, present, and future all at the same time. He sees all of it as the eternal now. You say, how do you know that? God tells us that. You see, Jesus is quoting here in John chapter 8, a passage that the Jews knew very well. What did they do as soon as he made this statement? What happened next in the passage? They picked up stones because they knew that he, by making this statement, was claiming to be God. You say, where is that found? Exodus chapter 3. Moses is before the burning bush. 
God is telling him to go rescue the, the Israelites from Egypt. And this is what he says. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now that they may say to me, Well, what is his name? What, what, what shall I say to them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said to, and, and, and he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says, I am the eternal I am. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus' deity, the fact that he is God, comes from his own mouth. What about his humanity? Well, you know, Jesus didn't make a whole lot of claims about his humanity. He didn't have to do that. The Bible is just filled with clarity about that. And let me give you just one Example, Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says he gets into a boat. His disciples follow him, and behold, those, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But where's Jesus? He's asleep. The dude's exhausted. Apparently healing people is just really kind of takes it out of you. I wouldn't know personally, but he was tired. I think this is hysterical, actually. I, you know, like he, the Bible's filled with all kinds of humor that we just kind of tend to read over. But when you see this, do you think Jesus maybe purposely fell asleep so that the storm could come, so that he could wake up and, and kind of deal? Of course, Jesus did many things that clearly indicated that he was a man. One of the most powerful to me is when Jesus stood at the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus, who had died. And he wept. Because in that moment, Jesus came to grips with the agony of the human condition that was never supposed to be a part of this life, which is death. And Jesus revealed in very real, powerful gritty sort of ways that he too is a man. And it is critical that he was both. It was absolutely paramount. You say, well, I, I, I thought that the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament is about grace. Is, isn't that the way we tend to see it? No, 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 no. The promise of faith Salvation, remember it said it was Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Where did that happen? Before the law. Before the law. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Always. You say, well, where does the law fit in then? Why is there that confusion? The New Testament addresses this. In Galatians chapter three, the very question, why the law then is where it is answered. So, Galatians 3, verse 19. Why the law then? Glad you asked. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be based on the law. But it was never based on that. 
But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up by faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, to point to Jesus. Every time we fail to live up to the law, it points to the reality of the need for Jesus to live under the law, to fulfill the law, to put it away. So that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under this tutor. Because the law of Christ, the law of love, shows up somewhere else. Not in our behavior, but in here. Hebrews 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law upon their heart. Sorry, I keep up here. There we go. And on their mind, I will write them. This is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Looking forward as we pull the thread to the day when through Jesus the law of God will be written on our hearts. And here's why Jesus needed to be both God and man. Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of the Son of God. Where? Into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. So that we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As Jesus lived perfectly the law, he put aside the law. A man had to do it, but only God could perform it. So the God-man did it. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it because no one else could. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that by the righteous requirement of the law, that it might fully be met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a substitute, a one who rectifies in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over since previously committed until the time would come when this red thread that we're pulling, the scarlet thread that we're pulling all the way through the Old Testament comes to its full fruition through the incarnation of Jesus. Because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And you say, Jim, this is great stuff. This is awesome. 
But what difference does it make to me? Why do I care about this today? What difference does this mean when I walk out of my house tomorrow? What's the main idea? What is the big idea? You say, what's the main idea? What's the takeaway that you have for me today? Well, the reality is that there are three main ideas that I want you to consider as we wrap up our time together today. The first one is this. That the Bible is one cohesive document with the purpose of laying out God's plan for redeeming and reconciling his prized possession back to himself. I know that's a big statement, but it's simply this. The Bible, from beginning to end, from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, without this artificial interruption in between, is one story where God himself has taken the burden to reach out to draw back to himself his prized possession, which is you and me, because we couldn't reconcile ourselves to him on our own. We cannot do it. That's what the Bible is about. One story from start to finish. The implication of that reality is our second main idea which is that the redemptive story of the Bible is a one-of-a-kind story. Every other faith, religion, ism, or ology, regardless of how it dresses up their picture, is founded on one thing. One thing. And it's basically, we need to just be good people and do the best that we can. (laughs) That's the best men can come up with. That's all we got when we're left to create our belief systems on our own. A couple of years ago, my wife and I brought dinner to our Muslim neighbors during Ramadan. Now, it's their month of fasting, and you understand that Muslims eat more food during their month of fasting than any other month of the year. They just do it when it's dark. And so we thought, okay, we're going to bring them a meal during, to bless them and tell them that we're praying for them during their month of fasting. And they invited us in, which we didn't expect them to do, and we had dinner with them. And so I was fairly young and new in my understanding of engaging Muslims in issues of faith, and I inadvertently kind of went for the jugular without realizing what I was doing. So I'm talking to their 18-year-old son, and I looked at him and I said, so tell me, what is salvation in the belief of Muslims? And he put his head down for a moment, and he picked up his head, and, and he simply said, There are no guarantees. That's all he said. And I'm like thinking, what? I mean, that's all you got? I mean, surely, surely there's more. Surely there's more to the story. But you know, there really isn't. The average Muslim, all they have is a hope that in the world of an arbitrary God, that they're going to do their best and check their religious check boxes and hopefully at the end of the day, God's going to make a choice in their favor. That's all they have. 
And in truth, that's all any world religion has. It may look different, the names are changed, the, the, the practices may vary, but the reality is underneath of it all, it is be a good person, that's all you got. Except for what we're talking about here today when God says you can't be good enough and that's just okay because I have a solution that is based on me and not on you. And it's called the incarnation. It's called Jesus came and he came to do one thing, to die on the cross for you. Which leads me to my third main idea. God wants you. The whole theme of the Bible, the one theme from start to finish is God has a redemptive plan for reconciling people. It's a one-of-a-kind plan. No other faith claims this plan. And the whole purpose of the plan is God wants you. Every you, individual you, here today and around the world. And sometimes you say, you know what, my life is really hard. And sometimes I don't really feel that God wants me. I mean, if he did, I think things might be a little different. Like things would go better. I mean, what happened to God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? This doesn't feel like such a wonderful plan to me right now. I get that. I understand that. The last five years have been the most difficult five years of my life. In 2014, my wife's best friend was murdered by her husband. Uh, It threw our home into a journey that I can't even begin to describe to you. My son was in fourth grade at the time and he lost a second mom. And it threw him into full-blown OCD in a way that I can't describe to you. There were many days that some little girl sitting at the same table next to him blew her nose and, and stuck her tissue on the table and we had to come get him from school because he couldn't handle what the germs were on that tissue. He, he lost his mind and we had to pull him from school for the day. That same year, I had open-heart surgery, which changed the course of a lot of things for me. And I could tell you a variety of other things that took place over the subsequent years that like, this story is not getting better. It's not getting easier. And I go, God, where are you in that? You want me so much? Where are you in this? But I have to tell you, God has shown himself faithful. You know, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. That's not the gospel. That's a human-centered gospel, not a Jesus-centered gospel. And sometimes the Jesus-centered gospel means difficult roads for his glory and for my transformation. And let me just say, God would rather transform you through your pain to be more like Jesus than simply take your pain away. You want God to take your pain away because you think you're, you're, you're mature enough right here and now. You don't need to get any more mature. You are very content with the level of transformation that you've achieved up to today. And God is not. And he is shaping you into the image of Jesus. And he is hot on your heels to do it. Because he wants you. 
and he has a plan for you, and that plan is to look like Jesus. And the challenges that you are facing are uniquely designed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you get there. And that is what the incarnation is all about. God wrapping himself in human flesh to become one of us, to reconcile us back to ourselves. It is a one-of-a-kind story. And the story's focus is to draw you back to himself because he wants you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it reveals to us about what you are doing. And I pray, Lord God, that through this Christmas season and through this series on the incarnation as we attack it from various different places, various different perspectives, God, that you would help us sink deep into the reality of this thread pulled through the entire Bible, this notion that you loved us so much. The only way to bring us back to you was to send Jesus from heaven to put him into a human body that he would be the 100% God, 100% man, the God-man, so that you may win us back to yourself. Thank you, Lord God, for doing that, we pray in your great name. Amen. Okay, we're, uh, I, can't, I can't think of a better sermon to lead us into celebrating the bread and cup, right? The Jim unlaying the, the whole plan of redemption before us um, and kicking off our incarnation series. Um, this, in some places, is called communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. This is for Christians, those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus for their redemption, for the atonement for their sins. Um, if, if you're not one of them today, uh, maybe this is the day. Maybe you can partake of these elements also for the first time in a really, truly meaningful way. Um, for the rest of you, be considering that, that load uh, that, that Jim was talking about, that massive burden, that sin debt that Jesus dealt with so that you didn't have to. As, as we remember his sacrifice for us. Guys, can, can you come forward and prepare the elements uh, for us? L let me pray over the elements. Our gracious, great, sovereign, heavenly Father, we thank you for making a way where there was no way. We thank you for taking that awesome burden, that awful terrible burden of our sin from us transferring it to the account of your son and forsaking him for a time that he might deal with that uh, lord help us now to come clean with you and repent and truly deal radically with the remaining sin in our lives and become sanctified through you uh, Lord, may your spirit be powerful in our midst. As we celebrate the bread and the cup, may you be honored by what we're about to do. We pray it in Christ's name. Uh, so if you could all come forward or go to the back, we have four stations around. Collect the elements and return to your seat and really be thinking about what Christ has done for you.
the, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, said this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do, to, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake in faith together. Paul goes on to say, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Uh, Paul finishes with this thought, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, this is... Uh, Guys, this is the glory of Christmas time, right? The true joy of Christmas is the coming of the Redeemer, the Savior. And uh, so the bread and cup is a somber reminder of what he had to go through on our behalf. But it is what makes it, it infuses the joy into Christmas in a very real way. I want to explore some of that with you on the 23rd if you uh, come back for the end of the Incarnation series. Uh, but in between now and then, I, I really am thankful for the way Jim kicked these things off. And uh, I hope that you will be blessed through our uh, discussion of the Incarnation in the month of December. Let's pray together and, and we'll dismiss. Our great and heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. We thank you for the uh, wonderful path to redemption that you have made. You made a way where there was no way. Uh, thank you for the word that you brought through Jim, uh, the reminder of your redemptive plan. From the very beginning, it was the plan. Lord, help us to walk in that newness of life and carry your gospel message to the world that so desperately needs it now. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.